Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 40th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 12th of October 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show has been brought to you by the generous monthly subscribers Ambrose A, Precious J, Jarek McH, and Jeffrey S. You too can keep the show's head above water by clicking on that there donate button on the podcast website. This week we are joined by Professor Matthias Griselli. Matthias is the Deputy Director of the Fields Institute for Research in Mathematical Sciences. He is also an Associate Professor at McMaster University, where he is the Co-Director of FIMAC, the Financial Mathematics Laboratory. He also writes a blog on quantitative finance for the Fields Institute, where he discusses his work, his thoughts on economic modelling, complexity theory and probability. We discuss the current state of neoclassical macroeconomic modelling, complexity and emergence, class dynamics, Wynne Godley and his stock flow consistent models, Hyman Minsky and Ponzi finance, black swan events and fragility, Bayesian versus frequentist statistics, poker and Samuel Beckett. We join the conversation as Matthias tells us about his recent trip to a conference at the San Francisco Fed. Things are fine. I just got back from that INET conference in San Francisco yesterday, one-day conference on finance and the wealth of nations. It was co-organized with the Fed, with the San Francisco Fed, so there was a, mostly a crowd of central bankers and traditional economists, so not, not a lot of people from INET. I was, I was a bit disappointed, I have to say. <laughs> the talks were all very, very traditional, very mainstream. Uh, most of the talks were, were given by people from either the San Francisco Fed or from local econ departments, right, Berkeley and uh, UCLA. And they were very DSG based, finance is a friction, all that kind of uh, thing. And I think they missed the point. The only, the only good talk was at the end of the day by uh, Lord Turner. And then he brought in all the ideas that should have been discussed throughout the day. But <laughs> So, Matthias, how did you end up becoming involved in the world of dynamic systems economic modeling? So my background is in physics and, and then mathematical physics through my PhD. And, and after that, I started working in uh, quantitative finance for my postdoc because the techniques there were, were perceived to be very uh, applicable. So stochastic processes and, and probability and things like that. But uh, in a somewhat traditional quantitative finance way, just, you know, dealing with pricing and hedging and the Black-Scholes paradigm and things like that. Uh, so I worked in, in that area for several years, got a, a position at a university here in Canada working in that as a mathematician. And then along came the 2008 crisis, which to people working in quantitative finance, mathematical finance, was a little bit of a wake-up call because we were 
somewhat at the center of the of the problem, so to speak, with the sophisticated instruments that were created, uh, CGOs and CGO squares and, and you, you know, the whole alphabet soup, but uh, somehow not at the center of the solution. So when I started then looking at more general models to understand why everything that was going on in the financial market would have the impact that it had in, in the larger economy, I found that the models were just not there. So to start with, the entire activity of banking and finance was not considered to be very important and in, in many of the models was not uh, existent at all. So I found myself in this uh, funny situation that on the one hand, everybody says that all of the world's problems start with derivatives and, and the fragility of the financial system. And on the other hand, when I tried to understand this on a more theoretical way, it, it didn't exist. It was as if it didn't exist in, in any essential form in most of the models. So, so then I started to read more of which view in which economic theories would incorporate banking and finance. And then I found Minsky, and that's how it all started. <laughs> what are the orthodox models for incorporating these type of macro event shocks at the moment? So it's, it's the model that starts with very simple view of aggregate behavior of the macroeconomy as mimicking or in some, some sense being reduced to the micro foundations, as they say, right? Sound micro foundations mean that you go down to what each individual agent is doing. But the aggregation is very hard. So they, they skip one step and say, OK, well, not only we are going to try to explain via individual agents, we are just going to pretend that there is no aggregation problem. We are going to pretend that uh, the entire system reduces to one agent or two agents or, you know, one representative agent for each of the, of the sectors that you're trying to deal with. So there's a household sector, well, that's all one agent. There is a banking sector, that's another agent. There is a firm sector that's a third agent, and then they interact, each of them, by maximizing whatever objective function they have. In household cases, a utility for the firm could be maximizing profit, uh, banks are profit maximizing as well. And then they reach an equilibrium, and, and once it is in equilibrium, uh, it remains in equilibrium forever until uh, there is something uh, external, some, some shock that is uh, exogenous, that's the word that is given, so it's not determined by the system itself, it comes from the outside, except that it's hard to understand what the outside is in this case, because it is meant to be the whole economy, but, but nevertheless, it's, it's coming from the outside, and then it perturbs the system. And once the system is perturbed, something happens, and, and then it is again assumed that it will go back to some other equilibrium, either an equilibrium that is exactly the same as it was before, or slightly different, but, but it will converge to another well-behaved equilibrium, and, and then we will start from there and wait until the next shock arrives. So I found that very uh, unsatisfactory in many levels. So when they assume there is maybe one or only two households or one or two firms, we don't have in these models any of the maybe emergent behaviours that come from a large number of interacting complex agents. You, you're very right. So, so none of that is present, which is extremely puzzling because in all other sciences or social sciences, you, you don't need to go just in one direction. People say, oh, you're trying to reduce uh, economics to physics and apply the same uh, mechanisms that are used in physics. But you go in the other direction, go to, to sociology or psychology, and there too you find that the behavior of the collective, the behavior of, of a complex system that arises 
arises from aggregation in individuals is never assumed to be reduced to the exact behavior of one of the individuals. So in the same way that in a, in a gas, you're not going to say that the, the whole of the gas behaves like one molecule, you also don't say that a society in sociology behaves like one individual. The interaction is important and the, the way that the interactions are configured is important and they do produce phenomena that are essentially what you said, they are emergent phenomena that cannot be understood individually. I'm not a neuroscientist or a specialist in neuroscience phenomena at all, but, it, but it's clear you open any, any book in neuroscience and you would be uh, preposterous to say that, okay, the brain has millions and millions of neurons, now we are going to assume that there is a representative neuron and understand the behavior of this one neuron and that will tell us what the brain is doing is, is I mean, it sounds like a joke to, to anyone who read anything on psychology or neuroscience. And nevertheless, this is the way that, that economics is done. And, and it's not treated as a joke, it's treated as somehow a deep understanding of the phenomenon because you are dealing with a very uh, rational uh, individual. So I've heard you describe the mathematics that's used in these DSGE models as Victorian. What are the main differences in the mathematical approach that you follow and where did these techniques come from? Well, well I, I, I say Victorian, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, of course, but, uh, but it's because it's based on mathematics as it was done in the 19th century. So it's differential calculus and, and marginal functions. So you, you look at maximizing functions. It, it's, it's essentially maximizing a concave function over a convex set with constraints. And economists got really good at doing that. And it can get complicated once you uh, make the sets more complicated and once you make the constraints more complicated and perhaps the characteristics of the agents a little bit more general and, and that quickly rises to a level of mathematical complexity that is it's hard to, to solve or you need a lot of trickery to, to find the solutions and to interpret the solutions. And, and that's all that they've been doing for the past you know, 50 or so years of uh, general equilibrium. Once the existence of general equilibrium for uh, some reasonably uh, abstract and general conditions were established was to, to make this more and more elaborate and, and, and complicated, but never went to completely different areas of metrics. For example, what I just said, uh, uh, network structures. So the, the network and the, the interactions between agents in general equilibrium models is, is extremely simple. The agents never interact with each other, basically, and they interact through the market mechanism. So the market sends signals, price signals, and the price signals coordinate all the interaction, coordinate all the outcomes. So if you think uh, graphically, this, this corresponds to all the agents being positioned in sort of isolated points connected to a central point that you could think as the auctioneer. So if, if you want to visualize, it looks like a star. Uh, there's a lot going on at the center, which is the market, uh, but the market only interacts with the individuals in one channel. Whereas real life is, is much more interesting than that. We communicate bilaterally. We have more than, than one agent that we communicate with. We have several. I go out and I have several shops to go and buy. And, and the shops themselves, they have several manufacturers and, and so on and so forth. So the uh, structure of the interactions requires a different understanding of the network. And network science is something that is very recent. It's not like two or three years old, but some breakthroughs in network science 
that have been happening in the past 10 years, so to speak. So that kind of technique, it's now been more, some economists have been paying attention to it, but not in, in any degree comparable to the other types of techniques that I was just describing. So the picture, instead of like a star where you've got one auctioneer and everybody buys from this one auctioneer, would be more like some kind of very dispersed cloud of actors. That's right. And, and the cloud has uh, non-homogeneous uh, clusters. It clusters in, in, in different ways and different sizes. Uh, because on the other extreme, because immediately economists will say, no, 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 that's not all that we do. You do consider interaction between agents when you treat, for example, game theoretical situations. But that's a huge jump. So knowing game theory, then what you, what you consider is all decisions of all agents interacting with each other. So each agent needs to strategically consider what the other agents are going to be doing, knowing that the other agents are also strategically considering their decisions. So it, it goes uh, quickly into an infinite regression loop of uh, I know that you know that I know that you know that I know that you know and so on and so forth. So, so the picture there is of, again, just one type of network where each point in the graph is uh, connected to each other, to every other point. So it's what's called a complete graph. Uh, so that network, of course, if you try to draw it, it, it quickly gets ugly because you imagine, you know, 10, 20 points and draw a line between each of the points to each other point. It looks like it's a very complex network, but it's, it's also not very complex because uh, then you have concepts like the, you know, the diameter of the network is defined as the uh, largest path between agents. Well, in this network that I just described to you, the largest path is always one, because each agent is connected to all agents by one link. So it's be between the very simple star and the completely connected graph for, for game theory is where life really is. Because uh, again, uh, we don't interact with all agents in the planet and try to, to take into account each of their decisions when we make our decisions. We, we sit somewhere in the middle where we interact with a limited number of agents. In a local way, information doesn't propagate instantaneously. The distance is not one between all actors. And we don't compute everything that everybody else is doing. We compute some reactions of some of our neighbors and then try to make our decisions based on that. So the, the mathematics of this kind of network, that it's somewhere in the middle between a star and a fully connected graph, is much, much more uh, interesting and, and rich. If your mind's neglected
Why do dynamical systems work so well for economics? The dynamical systems come in when you do a little bit of aggregation of the agents in sectors, but now you don't do the aggregation in a way that says, well, this is just one agent that is uh, rationally optimizing something. You just look at the combined account. The the interaction is empirical, like the way that the workers interact with firms. You don't assume that they are uh, maximizing a particular type of function. You just look at the empirical change in wages when and the situation in the economy is of a certain type, when employment is of a certain level, and inflation and so on. So this is kind of a class analysis. Well, that that is inspired by Marx's work of the interaction between the classes. And if you if you think a little bit about that, it's actually you know a, a lot more sophisticated than than thinking that the agents are all individuals that are rationally maximizing. Because now you introduce several behavioral constraints on how the sectors relate to each other, and they're based on real accounting relations. So the flows of money that need to be generated from one sector to another or within a sector when transactions actually occur, they are not up in the air, they are not flowing in a vacuum, they are all connected to the fact that people have balance sheets and when they pay or receive for something, they make a a monetary transaction or a financial transaction, they exchange claims, they exchange promises to pay things in the future. So so immediately you have uh, debt and credit playing a role, which is not present in traditional economics. So this would be the stock flow consistent models developed by Wynne Godley. That's that's exactly what it is. So so stock flow consistency is a way of looking at very real transaction dynamics between sectors, and this all documented in things like national accounts. Take what is given, and 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 then it constrains the system to say that every flow comes from somewhere and goes somewhere, and it impacts the initial balance sheet and the final balance sheet of the people doing the transactions. So the the consistency is that you cannot have transactions that don't affect the start and the end of the sector that is a transaction. So when when you do something like that, you immediately have what in in mathematics would be a dynamical system because now the budget constraints, so to speak, of the different sectors create equations. So it's a, it's a mechanism for generating the differential equations because now this flows in time. So we're talking about, you know, how my deposits change in, in the bank or how the deposits of the whole household sector in the aggregate change. So this is a differential equation for the level of deposits, for example, or for the level of loans that firms have with banks. So we have essentially in the models groups of aggregated behavior like workers and capitalists and maybe banks. And underlying this, we have a kind of a a balance sheet approach where when workers get paid from the capitalists or put their money in the bank, that everything must balance and be consistent from a balance sheet approach. And the flows of money, say, from somebody gets their wages from their employer and they buy something else from somewhere else, these flows constitute the equations that arise out of the model. Then we look at the interactions of these equations. 
Exactly. And they are not independent because now, you know, look at the workers, for example, they receive their wages and then uh, out of the wages, they pay consumption and they pay the rent and, and what have you. And, and they receive a little bit from interest on deposits that they already have. And perhaps if they have uh, stocks, they'll receive some dividends from the stocks that they already bought. And they'll pay a little bit of interest on loans that they made in the past. So after you do all that with the transactions, then you you're left with a financial balance. So it's what is left at the end of the day, a month, a year, whatever. So this financial balance now needs to be put somewhere. So now the balance is going to be split and it could be a positive or negative balance. It could, it will be split into the deposits and loans and equity that, that are available for the household. So now this new amount of money is available on the other side of the balance sheet for whoever is holding those things. So it's a loan from a bank. So now the bank has a different amount of loans to households in their balance sheets and they have a different amount of deposits and the equity that the households bought is financing the firms. So now the firms also are doing this game of getting all the profits that they make from selling their stuff to each other and to the households. And out of that profit, they will give a little bit of dividend back to the shareholders. And then they're going to have the internal finance that is available for the new purchases that they want to make to expand their production. But it might be that this is not enough for all that they want to do, or it might be that this is plenty. So again, it might be positive or negative. If it's positive, they are going to want to save this money. So they're going to you know, push on a bank or they're going to be buying bonds from the government. You can put the government into the system as well. But if it's negative, then they're going to try to expand by borrowing money and they are going to borrow money through the banking sector. So again, you have changes in the balance sheet of the bank, which is uh, lending to the firms. And then crucially at that point, you then need to, to consider that the banks are not just a residual balance sheet, something that just intermediates between you know, the households have left to save and this other amount of money that the firms want to invest. So this is the additional view of, of economics, that all the investment is done through the savings of the other sectors. And, and the banks are there just to mediate. They are, they are a fancy type of safe that you put money in through deposits and then they keep a little bit in the safe and then they give the rest as loans to the households. If that was all that banks do, then they would never be as essential and, and central to the expansion of the economic activity and contraction of economic activity that we actually see in the booms and, and bust cycles. The point is that banks do a lot more than that. They can create credit by expanding their own balance sheets. Whenever they make a loan to a firm, it generates a deposit to the firms as well that then add to the amount of money in circulation, um, but now not cash, but money understood as, as deposits, which is a substitute for cash. Most of the times, it's not a substitute for cash when people doubt that the banks are going to pay that cash. Then you have a banking crisis. Then people discover that deposits are not the same thing as cash. So at that point, you need to understand the banks as the sector in the economy that can create this circulation amount of, of purchasing power out of nowhere. Uh, not from savings of another sector, but, but really just by expanding their balance sheet.
And this is something that was well understood after the 1930s crisis. And that's, for example, what's behind proposals by some economists at the time to completely eliminate this role of banks as expanding and contracting credit by having a 100% reserve, for example. And these were not uh, cranks. Uh, we're talking about Simon and Milton Friedman and Irving Fisher in, in around the 1930s. They proposed exactly that. Now, that might be going a bit too far, but it's, it's a realization that that banks are not just uh, intermediaries and that they hold a lot of significance in the economy because of that. So this is all integrated in the stock flow consistent models, if you like. So we have our government sector, which can create government deficits. We have our banks, which can create money through the expansion of debt. We have our class model of employers and workers, and we have our stock flow, everything working underneath. Can you say how the work of Hyman Minsky uh, also fits into this model? Minsky had this profound understanding of all this mechanism. So Minsky understood that each actor, each uh, sector in the economy, in whatever level that you look, they all face budget constraints and, and they face this, uh, what he called a survival constraint, that the cash flows that are coming in need to be higher than the cash flows going out at every period. And if they are not enough, then you need to do something, then you need to borrow or you need refinance, you need to roll over your, your commitment. So, so Minsky had this notion of fragility when a significant proportion of the agents that are operating in the economy are very close to this survival constraint. So he famously divided the units, the economic units, into uh, hedge, speculative and Ponzi units, depending on how close to the survival constraint they are. So the hedge unit is very far from it, and all the incoming cash flows are always larger than the outgoing cash flows, the speculative unit needs to do a little bit of rolling, uh, provided that the markets are accepting that type of rolling of their commitments in order to satisfy that financial constraint all the time. And the Ponzi unit is the most fragile because the only way that they can satisfy the survival constraint, even by paying out you know, just the interest on the commitments that they have, is by borrowing more. It's called Ponzi because it's a traditional pyramid that the only way to maintain the cash flows is by expanding the base of fools participating in the scheme, so to speak. So when you aggregate all that, you have situations where either the system is, as a whole is very robust or very fragile. You can have a small shock, be it really a small shock out of nowhere. But the point is that the, the system as a whole is in a fragile stage. It's not that, you know, it was swimming along and then something knocked it off course. Uh, no, it was uh, moving into a fragile stage. And then in that fragile stage, it becomes a lot easier for small shocks to propagate and disturb the entire economy. So the Ponzi agents are essentially borrowing and rolling over their debt and hoping that the asset prices will keep rising. And when the economy gets into a state where there is a lot of these Ponzi operators, the system, the economic system is pretty fragile and all it can take is a minor occurrence to cause it to crash. Yes, because now, you know, if, if you're leveraged 20 to 1, then, you, you know, a small drop in the value of some of the things that you're holding, the assets that you borrow already to, to purchase, 
it can represent a complete wipeout of your net worth. Imagine you have a balance sheet that, that depends a lot on the value of the assets and you have a little bit of net worth on the other side and the assets have a small drop, a few percentage points drop, well, then, you, then you're wiped out. And then the only way that you have to satisfy your previous financial commitment is by selling these assets that you have. But now you're going to be selling at a slightly reduced price because that was what created the problem to begin with, the small shock. But now a lot of these people are going to be selling at this reduced price to generate some liquidity for them. Thereby, they are going to be putting even more downward pressure on the prices, which will then create problems for other agents. So now it cascades down in the same way that it was cascading up on the on the upswing when every time that asset prices were going up, more people would be buying assets because they would be hoping that the prices would go up even higher. Some people have called the 2008 crisis a black swan event. That would be a low probability, high impact event. But your kind of analysis would say that it wasn't actually a black swan event. No, that, that's right. It's, it's something that then you, you can have all sorts of small uh, little shocks and they have high probability and they are low impact, all of the shocks. But the system itself configured in a position that then propagates this impact. So it's not a low probability, high impact. It starts with very high probability. There can be many, many things that go wrong each of them with a very small impact and because of the inherent fragility and it's not inherent in a stationary way it became inherent it, it evolved to be fragile it's not that the system was always fragile then magnifies the impact so you start with high probability low impact and it propagates to something that has very high impact and in the end you have high probability high impact which is very bad <laughs> We all like to climb to the heights we love. Where our fantasy world can be found. But you must know in the end when it's time to descend. So what have you seen as the main insights then for your models when you put everything together? So all these ideas were there before, and, and I'm not claiming credit for any of the uh, economic motivation. But you, you read Minsky and in many parts where you would like to see a little bit more of uh, follow up, what is the implication? Or in other words, you want to do a little bit more analysis of the idea, then, then it stops short. And it stopped short for, for several reasons. Uh, uh, there's a certain uh, resistance to applying mathematical models in these corners of, of unorthodox uh, economics. But, but I, I don't think the resistance is justified. So I think, and uh, Steve King and, and others uh, think too, and going back even to Goodwin in the 1960s, that mathematical models uh, give you a, a way to both understand the phenomenon that you're trying to analyze and create, as you said, 
new insights. So what, what kind of new insights can you have? Well, f for example, you can try to characterize the fragility of the system by looking at, so in dynamical systems, uh, there's this concept of equilibrium being being good or bad or, or being stable or unstable. So so in the first paper that I had on analyzing the Keen model, one thing that we did is that we, we characterized that there is an equilibrium with finite debt, uh, that's the one you want to be, and there's another equilibrium with infinite debt. This is an equilibrium where the amount of, of debt and debt repayment in the economy completely overwhelms the economy and then eventually wages and employment just collapse and you have a, a complete breakdown of the system. And the point is that you could dismiss this other equilibrium, the one where things go really, really bad, if you could show there was unstable. So namely, there's only one very particular way to reach that equilibrium and any deviation from that will, will avoid it. And what we show is that this is not the case. Uh, that equilibrium is also stable. That equilibrium has, you know, a, a large number of configurations, a large number of initial conditions that will lead to that. So uh, Steve likes to talk about a, a black hole. Is you know, when you pass the horizon of the black hole, then then you never come back. You you end up going to that very very bad point. So the challenge here now is if there is this sort of significant basin of attraction of of this uh, bad equilibrium is to measure that and to see how far from that you are. Or conversely, how close to the good equilibrium you are and what kind of initial conditions are going to guarantee that you are going to go to the good equilibrium. So then what we show, what we show in the paper is if you draw a picture of the, of the basin of attraction for the good equilibrium, so when dash is very high, the diameter of the basin of attraction uh, gets uh, shorter and shorter. So that means that now every small shock is going to knock you out of this attraction to stable, finite dash, long-term behavior. And, and that is, in my view, one way to characterize and even quantify this uh, instability that Minsky was talking about, is by how far from the conditions that you currently find you in can you go before it just degenerates to a state of collapse. Then people say, oh, evidently wages and employment are not going to go to zero. There has never been a situation <laughs> in any country in any time in history where everybody was unemployed. So of course that's the case, but this, this is just the limiting situation and what you want to is to prevent that. But, but how do you prevent that? You can prevent that in a well-thought way, in, in a way that actually corresponds to the properties of the system, or you can prevent it by doing a, a lot of ad hoc measures that might or might not work. So in a follow-up paper, we introduced the government sector as something that acts counter-cyclically to what's going on. So what happens is that when so employment is going down because of the usual spiral that was identified by Fisher back in the 1930s, that people are trying to pay their debt because debt is very high, and the only way to pay debt is to reduce spending. But reducing spending means reducing output, which reduces the income. Then you have less money to pay the debt that you started with. So it's a debt deflation spiral and, and and this is exactly what we characterize in a dynamic way so what what can the government do the government can put a floor into that spiral by saying no now we're going to be uh, spending ourselves and and therefore the output is not going to be reduced and the income is not going to be reduced so the government in a very keynesian way helps to to generate aggregate demand which stops the profits from going too negative 
which stops then the divestment and and then the employment going going down. So that's all well understood, say by Keynes and and others. So what is our contribution? Well, is to is to say how much that needs to be dependent on how bad the situation is. So what we do is to make very simple functions for the government spending and taxation, and then show that you can even in a global way, so that is to say, regardless of initial conditions, prevent the equilibrium from reaching the uh, zero employment as long as the spending is sufficiently high. And then what we do in the paper is just to see how high it needs to be. So in the language of uh, dynamical systems, the spending of the government at very low employment is a parameter that turns out to be a bifurcation parameter in the system. If it's high enough, then you go to the good stable equilibrium. When it goes down, then you generate a lot of limit cycles. So you could have a situation where the economy looks like it's going to bounce back, but then it goes down again, and then it looks like it's going to bounce back and it goes down, so a sort of permanently stagnant economy. And if it's not high enough at all, if it's very low, then it degenerates to the crisis and bad equilibrium situation. So is your government spending function then, is it dependent on the level of unemployment? That's right, yeah. And so if you look today at the current economic climate where government deficits are being reduced in the time of high unemployment, this would lead us to think about, could it be that we're heading towards that bad limit cycle where we're getting stuck in a very low growth economy? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly what the model predicts. And, and, and we actually do in the model the situation with austerity. So negative government spending, so government saving when employment goes down in the hope of creating a more advantageous fiscal position. And, and then what we show is that this is really, really wrong-headed. All, all that it does is exacerbate the problem. Getting worse. Getting worse. Getting worse. Getting worse. Getting worse. Getting worse. So we've recently been in a bit of a what I would call a blogging war with a former guest on the show, Philip Pilkington, on the role of such models in economics. What was his objection to the use of of such models? Well, I don't quite fully understand your objections. And, and when we got deep into it, it, it came to be that he just thought that the models were too complex. You know, when, when very pressed, he said that he doesn't use models for his analysis. He uses a rule-based approach. That is to say, you come up with a simple rule that applies for a little bit, and then you abandon the rule. Well, that's a model. Uh, it's just a simple model, and it's a model that you are prepared to abandon very quickly. The models that I used are of that same nature, so nothing there is uh, God-given. So if, if you go back to the very beginning when I was saying the way that the sectors interact is through behavioral uh, relationships that are, are coming out of the actually observed data. So that's your simple rule, if you like, except that it's not that simple. I mean, you need to work a little bit to see how many of those behavioral relationships you need to identify and, and which are the ones that are significant for the system and, and which are not. And, and you do that by trial and error. You do that by carefully looking at the constraints and the economic agents and seeing what is generating an impact and, and what's not. So, which I think is the way that he also does his rule-based approach, because there are infinitely many rules. How do you select the rules that you think are going to apply? You, you use your common sense, you use your experience, you use economic history, you use insight from other economists. So, so I think... <laughs> 
Uh, I'm sure he's going to disagree with that because he said it, that, you know, the type of models that I and Steve and Dirk Besemer and, and even uh, Godley use are not the type of thing that he's doing. But I think that essentially they are the same, only at a different degree. Uh, and, 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 you know, uh, simplicity is in the eye of the beholder. So there was another blog post where he was saying that uh, multiplier equations are good you know, the type that Keynes proposes, you know, there's a consumption multiplier and an imports multiplier and what have you. And they are good because they reduce to simple equations where you have a numerator and a denominator. And if a number is in the denominator and it goes up, you know that the effect is, is negative because everybody knows that something in the denominator, when it gets bigger, the whole fraction gets smaller. The equation itself might look complicated, but to a trained eye, it's easy to identify the effects. Well, that's exactly what I say. A dynamical system might look complicated, but to a trained eye, you easily identify what's going on. There's issues of stability and global and local stability. So those are very standard mathematical tools that, sure, they are going to look complicated to someone who has no training whatsoever, but so does a complicated fraction. A fraction, if you present to anybody who, who never looked at how these things work, they are going to find complicated. So just as Philip says, you need a little bit of training to understand the effect of multipliers, well, you also need a little bit of training to understand the effect of not-so-complicated dynamical systems. It would seem that all economic work is a form of modeling, and that putting into the mathematics really is a process of making things crystal clear. Would it be true to say that there is a kind of reluctance on some heterodox economists to deal with mathematics due to how it's been misused in the orthodox neoclassical school? Oh, I think that's exactly it. It's, it's, it's not only fair to say it's, it's the whole truth, because as, as I said before, the apparatus that is used in orthodox economics, even though it comes out of very simple ideas of optimizing concave functions over convex sets, you can make that very complicated and overwhelming and, and intimidating if you want. You, you add all sorts of bells and whistles and very quickly it becomes impenetrable. And I think that has been used as a line of defense to say, well, you just don't understand what we are doing, therefore you cannot criticize. So, so you put enough barriers to sort of dress up a result that is essentially coming out of a very simple and, and misguided assumptions to begin with. But then you say, okay, no, 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 we'll just persevere with these bad assumptions like neutrality of money or rationality of individuals, the fact that you can simplify uh, the macro behavior to the micro behavior. So we we'll start with that and then we do very laborious uh, mathematics and end up with something that, that cannot be comprehended and, and therefore say that the critics don't have a place to attack. So this has been done routinely by a lot of mathematical economists, not, not very good mathematical economists, because the really, really good ones, the people who were proving things like the Sonnenschein mantel de Brue theorem, they understood all the limitations, and in fact, they proved negative results. These theorems that I just mentioned, what they show is exactly that even though an equilibrium exists in general, it's not very stable, it's not stable at all. 
perturbations to equilibrium, there is no guarantee, there is no mechanism that guarantees that it's going to go back to any sort of uh, well-behaved equilibrium again. And this is, a, this is a deep mathematical result that has to do with the structure of the aggregate demand curve in general equilibrium. So I'm not saying that all mathematical economists doing traditional economics try to hide the flaws of the theory. The really good ones didn't explicitly, and they published papers on that. But a lot of them did, and, and this lingers on, and, and it became a reason for people to reject mathematics. Another part of your disagreement was on the use of Bayesian versus frequentist models. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the difference between these two and how their use changes a model. So, so I'm not a, a statistician and I don't do that professionally, but, but this was because of an objection that is also common in heterodox economics that the lack of ergodicity in the system prevents you from doing anything scientific. Now, what's ergodicity? You'll have to explain that. Okay, exactly. So, so this is a sentence that one hears often. And Paul Davison, a, a very prominent post-Keynesian economist, is someone who repeats this all the time. And, and in fact, you know, he gives talks with titles like Why Risk Management Cannot Be a Science. And the answer is that because for any scientific treatment of economics, you need ergodicity. And because ergodicity fails, then it cannot be a science. So what is this concept? Well, an ergodic process, an ergodic time series, for example, is one where the so-called time average, so, so if you observe it long enough, you start making averages of what you see in time. The time average equals what is called in probability the sample space average. So in other words, you can infer uh, properties of the ensemble of all the, the possible outcomes of the system, so to speak, by observing the system long enough that if you observe the system long enough, you can make inferences about its probability distribution. So if we look at the stock exchange, say the Dow Jones index for a long enough time, we can figure out what its average value would be, for example. Oh, something like that. And more than the average, you can come up with other properties of the distribution of the system. Standard deviation or... Yeah. So this is really what underlies the frequentist approach to probability, which means that when you assign a probability to an event, the only meaning that you should give to that is that this is the number to which the number of occurrences of the event will converge if you repeat this experiment infinitely many times. So, you know, if you say the probability of uh, seeing heads when you do a coin toss is half, because if you do uh, one million coin tosses, you're going to see 500,000 on average. So you're going to see close to 500,000 heads, okay? So that is indeed in many results that concern things that frequentists are interested in, like when, when you do elections, right? You say, oh, such candidate has 40% of the electorate with a margin of error of 2%. So that's the confidence interval. It says that it's between 38 and 42, but it's not between 38 and 42 always. It's between 38 and 42 with a given probability. So typically it's with a you know 95% probability. So it means that one time out of 20, if you actually repeated this election, if it could be possible to repeat the election, you would only see results that are outside of that interval one time out of 20, okay? 
but, but what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that, of course, you don't repeat elections, right? The elections are unique, and that underlies what uh, the criticism of, of the use of the ergodic hypothesis, that in, in many situations in economics, for whatever reason, either because there's some structural changes in the event that you are trying to study, namely, say, the stock market now is not what it was in the 20s, so it doesn't make sense to acquire a time series that goes back to the 20s, or because the event that you study is really of a unique nature, like a terrorist attack in New York City. Uh, even though people might say that, you know, you can try to look at a collection of terrorist attacks in other cities, but, but anyways, you, you can make the argument that each of them is going to be different because of the political uh, circumstances of each of the places and so on and so forth. So, so there needs to be an alternative to this meaning of probability that doesn't depend on either repeating an event in identical circumstances or looking back in time for time series, some significance to what you are doing now. And that alternative is, is simple. It's something that statisticians have been doing for a long time, and it's, it's the Bayesian approach, whereby the meaning of the probability is not something that repeated experiments will converge to. The only meaning that they assign to a probability is the degree to which they believe that that outcome is, is going to happen. And you can even uh, quantify that. So how do you put a, a number to that degree of belief? Well, we do input the number, say 0.4. And, and what does that mean? If it doesn't mean that uh, you're going to repeat this a thousand times and only going to see the result 40% of the time, if you're only going to do once, well, that means that those are the odds that you would put in a bet if you had to bet against that outcome. So that's what the assignment of probabilities mean to a Bayesian. And then people say, oh, but but this is entirely arbitrary. So so you can you can say that your beliefs are whatever you want, and essentially you can, but you only do that at the start of your analysis, and and this is what Bayesians call a prior. So the prior quantifies everything that you know about a system before you start collecting any new information about the system. But that but you don't stop at that. If you if did stop at that, then it would be very stupid. You you would be in the possibility of learning about the system that you're trying to, to describe. So the next step to a Bayesian analysis is to update your degrees of belief. And you update that based on what you observe. So there's a rule that allows you to update your probabilities and and depending on the strength of the evidence, that update is going to be very fast and you're going to either, you know, confirm the priors that you have or you're going to change them very much. So it's not true also that, you know, Bayesianism is a way just to reinforce our own bias. We start with a prior that has a lot of bias and we never get out of that. No, it's not true. If the evidence that is presented to you is sufficiently powerful, then you're going to change your, your priors very quickly. I play quite a bit of poker and I must say that I hold a Bayesian worldview. If I didn't, I would lose a lot of money. If I had to wait forever to figure out when I see a new player come in and I'm playing against a guy I've never played before, if I don't make decisions on his type of body language or his clothes or his demeanor on the probability he's bluffing or not bluffing, I would lose a huge amount of money. So it seems like that the Bayesian way of looking at the world is extremely effective, certainly in betting game scenarios. Yeah, and I, I would say it's effective in uh, a lot of uh, circumstances where you have these this conditions. 
So the point is that, you know, as we do science or economics or daily life decisions, we have a hybrid of phenomena. There are some phenomena that are very qualitative and hard to assign numbers, and some phenomena that are not. And the only way to incorporate them into a coherent way is by, well, Maybe there are other ways, but scientists and, and mathematicians and statisticians haven't come up with it. But the, the most helpful way of incorporating types of evidence is Bayesian updates. It reminds me of a famous Samuel Becker quote. Ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a poem now that we're, we're talking quotes called "The Road to Wisdom" is by a by a mathematician actually, and and it goes like this: It says, uh, "The road to wisdom, you ask, it's very simple: to err and err and err again, but less and less and less." So I have one final question for you. Economics, as you probably are well aware of, is a minefield of ideology and hidden agendas. Does the fact that you're not an economist by training, does it worry you at all about your ability to model the economy accurately? You're constantly maybe having to rely on economists for insights on how to model. Well, it, it does worry me, but I, I think the only uh, solution to that is to read broadly and, and to listen to a lot of economists. So so I try to go to as many conferences as I can. Before we started talking, I just said I was back from a conference in the San Francisco Fed, where the majority of the talks were for very traditionally trained economists. And, and I thought the insights were not that great. But I put that into my tool bag and said, OK, well, this is what these people are doing. And then I listened to people coming out of you know modern monetary theory people doing post-keynesian economics of all sorts of shades so i think as we were talking before bayesian right i need to come up with my priors of the uh, effectiveness of the different models and 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 i do that constantly you know assigning the uh, likelihood but but that is not very numerical that's just then a, a degree of belief of how much you know utility optimization uh, explains and how much alternative approaches uh, explain and and then throughout my own education and then mixing it up with events that have worked what happens is that those assignments change and and then you know some of the models I become more convinced that they have validity and some of the models I, I become less convinced so so I don't think you asked if I worry I, I do worry does that stop me from venturing into that territory no well on that note thanks very much Matthias for coming on the show today thank you On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and the stereo MCs connected. Dusty Springfield told us how there is no easy way down, and a variety of characters from the PlayStation game Parappa the Rapper 2, how things are getting worse. You also heard Senator David Norris quoting Samuel Beckett in his resignation speech from the Irish presidential election. And you are now listening 
liked Billie Holiday and What a Little Moonlight Can Do. Thanks for listening. And I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Ha!